Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, as we see within your word some of your purpose for marriage, for husbands, for wives, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work within us, sharpening us, refining us, directing us to the Lord Jesus. We pray that these words would uh, both comfort and encourage. We pray that they would, where necessary, rebuke and reprove. But Lord, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would speak through them. And that we, your people, by your Spirit, would have ears to hear. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, as a, as a young Christian, as a, as a young man who, who's growing in trying to figure out what it meant to be a Christian, I found lots of things about the Bible curious. And to some degree, I still find some of them rather curious. Marriage in particular was one that I thought was unusual. Let me explain. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Okay, clearly, marriage is important. And in fact, we don't have to look very hard as we flip through the pages to see when when folks didn't have this sort of view about marriage and some of the disastrous results that, that ensued. But what I found curious is that if the scriptures have this view of marriage... Why is there no picture of, say, a wedding ceremony? Like, and I'm, I'm being specific here, I mean like an order of service, right? You know, in the Old Testament, you'll see that, that so-and-so, so-and-so just, they got married or, or something like that. I mean, we could look at the way that, that pastors or elders in the New Testament are, are selected and, and prayed over. We could look at the way that priests in the Old Testament were consecrated and, you know, they had to put special garments on or they, they went through a process, a procedure. But we see that marriage isn't quite that way. It, it's the, the details surrounding, say, the ceremony of marriage are, are somewhat more nebulous. They're, they're uncertain. And I I think the conclusion I've come to is that people probably knew how to get married. That, that wasn't, you know, the utmost concern. What, what the scriptures do have in focus is how people are to behave or how they are to conduct themselves once they have become married. And indeed, our, our section of Malachi this morning looks at marriage And in Malachi, we see that marriage is directly tied to worship. Not worship of your spouse, but worship of the Lord. And as we then think about that, we see that the people of God are wandering, as they often are, away from the Lord. And it's through the medium of marriage. And Malachi is calling them to repentance. He's calling them back to to faithfulness. Because the Lord would be the, the Lord of a people who worship Him wholeheartedly. The Lord would be the Lord of a people who would seek after Him alone. Well, what, is that, what does that mean? We see in the context of Malachi 2 that there was a great amount of polygamy. And the result was that, that men would, would have an Israelite wife... 
And then they would marry another who's called the daughter of a foreign god. And then they would end up divorcing their first wife. They shouldn't do that. Neither should we, just so you know. And Malachi's warning to them is that if you do that, you'll be cut off from Israel. And as we wrestle with how Malachi is speaking to us through the same idea of husbands and their wives, we need to act not faithlessly, is what the text says. Another way to say that, a better way to say that, is that we need to act in good faith toward our spouse. We need to to be faithful to them. And it's men in particular. The text is going to call us to love your wives. Each man to his each wife, right? Not multiple wives. That's the point. But men, love your, your wives. In fact, love them as Christ loved the church. Now we see, as we look at Malachi, that there's a problem. And that is that the people have been dealing treacherously against, each one against his brother. It says it in, verse, in the second half of verse 10. It says, why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? And what we see here is Malachi, I don't think he probably has multiple wives, but he's identifying with Israel here. And he's saying, we as a people have done this. And we, we might ask, treachery? How would we talk about treachery? And we see that that is answered in verse 11 when Malachi says that the people had married daughters of a foreign god. That's another way to say that that the people have married or taken a foreign wife. And Malachi describes this as an abomination in Israel. He says that the Lord's sanctuary, where they would go to worship, it has been profaned. And as we think about that, as we hear that, that's incredibly strong language. And there's a, a misunderstanding that I don't think we want to adopt. And it's the sort of misunderstanding, I think, that would be prone to develop in our current culture. And that is to say that this is not the result of xenophobia. That, that Israel just, they're, they're almost racist, or perhaps are racist, and so they, they need to not associate with those heathens, and, and they're afraid of them. That's not what's going on. In fact, we, we see in Israel's history uh, some notable examples where um, there were marriages with people who were from foreign nations. Uh, you see here, or you, you think here, about Rahab or Ruth. Rahab was a, a, a resident of Jericho, which means that she would have been a Canaanite woman. That's one of the nations that you weren't supposed to marry. You see Ruth... She's a Moabite woman. That's another one of those nations you weren't supposed to marry. But both of these women play significant parts in redemptive history. In fact, both of them are listed in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. So to say that Israel simply, you know, you're not allowed to to marry a foreign woman, that's not quite what's in, in view, though that is the command. The issue is, And you see with my examples of Rahab and Ruth that these women sacrificed a lot their families, their culture, their their pagan religions to join Israel. That's not 
what is going on in Malachi's day. In Malachi's day, the men are seeking out women of other nations, but crucially what? They're daughters of foreign gods. That means they're not giving up their pagan religions. That means that when uh, an Israelite man uh, first is, is breaking a vow to his, his, the wife he's got, as he marries this, this other woman, he's marrying into her religious practices. And that is not to be. Now we might wonder how widespread this practice was. We see actually in Ezra 9 a, a description of it. And we remember that Ezra and Malachi are, are contemporaries. And this is what Ezra 9 verses 1 and 2 says. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, that's Ezra, saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to the according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Here again, unfaithfulness is to the first spouse, the spouse of, of your youth, the, the Israelite uh, wife, but it's also unfaithfulness to the Lord. And Ezra there describes that this phenomenon is happening not just here and there, but is amongst the leaders and the lay people, and, and indeed everybody's participating in it. And we know, as we carefully study the scriptures, that this is not an isolated incident. Uh, we, we, you know, we, the, the classic example of this is Solomon. And 1 Kings 11 addresses that. Uh, needless to say, well, we'll save you some of the ickiness, but just to say that he, he had a whole bunch of wives and, and even more concubines. And they were of all of those nations that you weren't supposed to have wives from. But here's the part that, that is of utmost importance. It says this, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. And then it, it goes on to say, Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully, as David his father had done. He built high places for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountains which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. What's going on here? Just like in Malachi's day, we see Solomon, he's going after foreign wives. But these aren't foreign wives who are joining Israel. These are foreign wives who are serving foreign gods. And Solomon is not just bringing the, the young lady into his court. He, he's bringing th their God. And it leads the people astray. In fact, the idols that Solomon sets up prove to be a stumbling block for hundreds of years for the Israelites. 
who continue to, to follow those instead of the Lord. The people in Malachi are simply following in Solomon's footsteps. Well, how do we respond to this? Well, there's a first, I think there's an obvious application. Young men, young men looking to maybe get married someday. Marry, or, marry a follower of Christ. Why? Same reason. Just as these foreign women worshiping foreign gods pulled Solomon's heart away from the Lord, so too in our day do those who, who don't follow Christ pull us away from the Lord. So young men, as you're pursuing a young lady and wanting to, to marry her, make sure she knows the Lord. We see that um, in Israel, verse 12 tells us that the one who marries a daughter of a foreign god, in addition to the wife of his youth, is cut off from the tents of Jacob. That's to say, he's, he's cut off from the presence of the Lord, that any, any sort of offering he presents to the Lord is no longer valid. But we see that instead of repenting, and instead of, of, of trying to, to, to address that sin, the people sort of double down on not following the Lord. It says this in verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So I guess picture this in, in your brains, in, in your minds. You know, you, you've committed a sin and you go to, to make a sacrifice. You go to make an offering, but it's not accepted. And you know it's not accepted because of the sin in your life. But rather than repent of the sin, you just say, you know what? I'm going to make an extra special offering. That'll cover it. But it doesn't. Um, what we see here is that the people, they're, they're sort of pretending to follow the Lord. That their lips are close to the Lord as they weep and they wail on the altar. But their hearts are far from the Lord. Um, we might even see a, an extreme form of this worship. If you remember when Elijah and the prophets of Baal have a, a competition, so to speak... Right, They both take bowls and they both call upon their gods to bring fire from heaven. And the prophets of Baal couldn't do it. And eventually they, 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 they began cutting themselves and, and, and making loud noises. What they were doing is the same thing that the people of Israel were doing. They were trying to show their dedication in the hopes of, of eliciting a response from the Lord. You know, twisting his arms so that he does what they want. But that's not the way that worship should be. It's not just the fact that, that we offer a sacrifice in the appropriate way or for you and for me today. It's, it's not just that we have, say, the uh, appropriate parts of the service. It's that worship is to be an outpouring of our heart. An outpouring of our heart as we come to meet the Lord and we worship Him. 
In short, that in itself serves as a reminder that we are saved by grace. You know, the, the Israelites in Malachi's day weren't saved just by their sacrifice in the temple or, or then their weeping over the temple to show how you know, sincere they were. That, but that believers down through the ages are saved by grace through faith. Now, because the people are marrying these foreign women, because they are multiplying wives, the Lord says they have no place in Jacob. And as we reflect on that, we might think, well, gosh, I seem to remember instances in the Old Testament where there is polygamy, right? That's okay, right? I mean, Abraham sort of did it. If it's good enough for him... Well, as we look at those verses, as we look at those examples in the text, uh, in in the Old Testament, uh, what we see is that apart from when uh, a second wife was was married because your brother was dead, right? We remember that if 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 I'm I'm married in the Old Testament and and my brother's married and, and he dies, I'm supposed to redeem her. I'm supposed to marry her. And and if we have kids, she those are not sort of my kids, they're my brother's kids, as it were, right? I'm continuing that line. Apart from that special circumstance, in the Old Testament, where there is polygamy, it always ends poorly. We could think about um, Jacob, right? With his wives and then his 12 children. They got along so well. Oh, wait, no, they sold one of them into slavery. Um, Or you could think about uh, uh, Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar, that, that went well, right? No, that, that also didn't go so well, right? That polygamy is not part of the Lord's purpose. And so he, the language in Malachi is that the people have dealt treacherously, right? That it's an abomination. And if we look at the scriptures, uh, we see the how the Lord views marriage, and that begins to to take shape. If we take another look at Genesis 2, we see in verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that's worth wrapping our brains around just a little bit. Right, before Eve existed, right, she was a potential person, in Adam's rib. That is to say they were one person. And then Adam is put to sleep, rib is taken out, fashioned into a woman, the spots closed up. Adam then sees her and they're married and guess what? They become one flesh. Well, they were always one flesh, but they become, in, in, in the presence of God, they become one flesh. They are united Husbands and wives are not each individual person. They are united in one flesh. We see that uh, Jesus in Matthew 19 continues that idea, calling husbands and wives one flesh, but he, he goes further. He says, what therefore God has joined together. So not only were Adam and his wife one flesh, God joins them together. Not only are you with your spouse one flesh, God has joined you together. And what God has joined together, 
let no man separate. We see then in, uh, in Ephesians 5, Paul drives some of this significance home. When he says that this relationship between the Lord Jesus and the church mirrors the relationship between husbands and wives. And there again, the other way around. So what does that mean? That means, husbands, you love your wives as Christ loves the church. As Christ laid down his life for the church. As Christ presents the church as holy and blameless. So too, husbands, love your wives. And as we, as we think about that, uh, that can be kind of overwhelming. That can be uh, uh, somewhat difficult. Because if I'm honest with myself, I, I will say, Lord, I don't know that I can do that. I have a, a wonderful wife, and I, and I get to celebrate her today because it's Valentine's Day. I have a wonderful wife. I don't love her the way I should if the way that I'm supposed to love her is the way Christ loves the church. But this also helps us understand why this, there was such a problem in Israel. Because if, if husbands aren't loving their wives, there's no witness for the manner in which God loves his people. Husbands today, love your wives. Why? Because the way in which you love your wives, again, is to, to reflect the way that Christ loves his church, his people. And there again, as, as we think about that, I, I, to some degree, that's a little bit crushing. Because I don't do that very well. You don't do that very well. We can't do that well. But, but let's just, we'll come back to that. Let's kind of, if we, if we recognize that God's purpose is in, in marriage is to show the way in which he loves his people, we see then that Israel's in trouble. Why? Because they've added extra wives to their numbers. And not wives that are going to be full of faithful obedience, wives who are going to, to directly lead them to foreign, detestable gods. So what's the solution? What's the solution to these problems in the people in Malachi 2? Well, it's there in verses 15 and 16. And they say, But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. All due respect to the New American Standard, which is a fine translation, that doesn't sound very straightforward. Um, and the reason for that is that the Hebrew in these verses is very difficult to translate. And I, I'm not sure they got it 100% Correct. So, so I'm, I'm also going to have put up the, the English Standard Version, the ESV. And these are the same two verses. Did he not make them one 
with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the Spirit and let none of you be faithless to your wife, to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now we see that the the text is slightly different the way that it it describes exactly what's going on and and the purpose of marriage and, and what it is that's going on with divorce. But in both of these, I I hope you see that the action that it's calling you to is the same. It says, take heed in your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. This means do not act faithlessly, or we might say act in a faithful manner to your wife. How in the world can husbands do this? And to be clear, we would say the same thing to wives, to act faithfully toward your husband. Well, as we think about how we might do that, we recognize that there are whole industries devoted to husbands and wives and being good husbands and wives and, and, and how we're to communicate. And you, we could look at that and we could say, I don't even know where to begin. But this morning, as we, as we think about how we could be good husbands and wives, I'll give two points of application. First, don't keep score. Or rather, keep score but keep it accurately. And what I mean by that is go ahead. Get out a big board. Um, I sin a lot, so I'll probably need a real big board. And, and keep track of every time that you've sinned against your spouse and your spouse has forgiven you. And go ahead and keep track of every time your spouse has sinned against you and you've forgiven them. And when you think that there's a big enough discrepancy that you can go to your spouse and say, listen, you're not pulling your weight, pause. And I want you to look at another list. Every time you've acted faithlessly to the Lord. And every time he has acted perfectly, faithfully to you. And when you recognize all of the times that you fall short of the Lord's expectations for you and he forgives you. Go ahead and throw the rest of the, the stuff away, right? And this is, this is the point of, of the parable of the unmerciful servant, right? That you have a king and two servants, servant A and servant B. And servant A owes the king billions and billions of dollars, an, a, an amount you can't possibly repay, and the king forgives it. But then when servant B owes a couple thousand dollars to servant A, he won't let him off the hook. He, he won't let him go. In fact, he, he throttles him. He says, pay what you owe. And he puts him in jail. And when the king finds out, he says, well, this isn't right. And he releases the servant B and he puts servant A in, in the jail and, until he could pay what he owed and he would never be able to do that. And it's a picture of, of, of forgiveness in the kingdom. Husbands, wives, All of you, as you think about the ways in which the Lord has forgiven every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed, so you are to forgive others when they sin against you. So keep score with your spouse, 
but keep score remembering the ways in which the Lord has forgiven you. That would be a good way to act faithfully toward your spouse. And the second thing that that I would say is, if we're looking to act faithfully toward our wives, the text says, take heed, and and we say, what does it look like? And I would say, that would be, try to be conscious not to respond with disgust, disdain, or contempt for your spouse. Now, currently sitting in the, the light of the sanctuary on a Sunday morning, it's fairly easy not to respond to your spouse that way. But what about when it's Thursday night and it's an hour past the bedtime you wanted and your spouse is asking you to do something? Oh, just one more thing. And of course you do it because you know that you want to be a good spouse, but in your heart you're saying, oh, I just want to be in bed. And, and you have disgust. Ah, can't you see that I'm tired? Or, or um, you know, what if as you're, as you're having some sort of disagreement over a major issue, I don't mean like where you're going for dinner, I, but I, uh, um, where you're going to live, and as you have this disagreement and, and you're weigh, you know, weighing pros and cons, as you interact with your spouse and you just have no regard for their input, you're responding with contempt. Don't do that. Because if these things are left unchecked, pretty soon you won't value your spouse. You'll have no wonder about the fact that you and your spouse have been made one flesh. I think that's in part what happened in Malachi's day. That the people of Israel lost any sort of wonder in the gift of a godly wife that they had and sought to sow their wild oats in the neighbor's field. We cannot do this. We need to take heed. And as we, we then think about all that's gone on in Israel, we come to a, a rather startling verse. It's verse 17, and this is what it says. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? And as we think about verse 17, we're actually going to look at it this week and next week because this is the end result of where the Israelites were when they didn't understand what it meant to love the, the, that the Lord loved them. This is what it meant when they didn't understand worship and it's what it means when they don't honor their wives or the covenant they've made with their wives. They've wearied the Lord. And, and we're going to look at it next week because we see the ways in which the Lord responds to that. And it's important that we think about the ways in which the Lord responds to it because if, if I just leave you with take heed that in your own thoughts and in your own hearts you don't deal treacherously with your spouse. It's just like me saying to you husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Or to say to you wives, uh, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. If, I, if that's all that you had, it would be crushing. Because you would see the ways in which you can't possibly 
do it. But as we think about that, as we, as we wrestle with taking heed in our own mind, we remember that before Paul called husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, actually a couple chapters before, in Ephesians 3, he, he said this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the power through the Spirit in the inner man. Repeat the second part of that. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. That's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. That's his prayer for you and for me as well. What does it mean? It means that as we sit here, as husbands, as you think about loving your wives, wives, as you, as you think about how to, to respond faithfully to your, your husband, and you recognize, I can't do what the scripture's saying. Paul knows that. But it's his expressed prayer that the Spirit of God would be working within you and within me to strengthen us, to bring it about. So that it is not obedience by my own power, because that just won't happen. But it is the Holy Spirit working through each of us that we might follow the Lord. So, as Malachi would say, take heed to, to, to live faithfully with your spouse. Of our own efforts, we say, I don't know if I can do that. But in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit working within us, we can say yes and amen. And in two weeks' time, as we conclude the book of Malachi, Lord willing, we'll see the manner in which the Lord brings this about. Amen.